So I want to start off today's shir by not only thanking Chazak and Torah Time for putting together this shir, but for all the amazing things that they do for Klai Yisrael. And in today's shir, I want to delve into one of the most incredible and deep topics in Torah thought. But I want to start off with a story. And the story is of an alien who comes from outer space to your backyard. And you want to introduce some of the most incredible things on planet Earth to this alien. Who knows where this alien's from? So you love chocolate. And you want to help this alien really get a handle, really get a sense of what it means to be on planet Earth. And for you, being on planet Earth means enjoying chocolate. So you come over to this alien and you tell him all about chocolate. Chocolate is this amazing, amazing product. It's sweet. It's made of cocoa bean. You add some sugar. It's delicious. So the alien says, oh, okay, okay. And then you say, this is what a picture of chocolate looks like. And then you spell out the word chocolate underneath the picture. So now you've told him about it. You've shown him a picture of it. He sees the word. And then you say, you know what? I actually have a piece of chocolate. And you show him. Now he sees the chocolate. But then you say, here, you hand him the chocolate. Now he, he feels the chocolate. But then you open up the wrapper for him and he can smell the chocolate. But then you say, put it in your mouth. It's food. You can taste it. And he tastes the chocolate. Those are all different types of knowledge, different types of experiences. And you'll see as we go through the shear why that's relevant and why that's important. So I want to talk about perhaps the Iker topic when it comes to Judaism is what is the Iker? What is the core? What is the source of our Masor, of our tradition? So we just came from Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, from Pesach. We're leaving Pesach. We're going to Mantor. We're counting Sphiris Omer. And we're really tapping into our Masorah, our tradition. And we have to really question, where, where is the Iker? Where is the focus of our tradition? When we think about what it means to be a Jew, and we talk about the different types of zechiris, different types of remembrances that we have, but what, is the, what are we tapping into? Where, what are we sourcing ourselves back into when we think about our identity as Jews? So if I were to ask you, what would you think the ikr, the core, the essence of being a Jew. Well, what memory, what, what event, what idea, what, what would you say? What would you think we should be tapping into? So the real question that we're going to be delving into is the question of should it be Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, which is where we just came from, that's what Pesach is about, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, or should it be Ma'an Torah, Shavuos, which is where we're heading towards. And if you think about it, what was the entire goal of leaving Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? The entire goal was Kabbalah Satora, was receiving the Torah, connecting to Hashem, receiving our mission in life of being Omach Hushemayim and being someone who's, who's mitzvah, someone who, who is commanded to live a life according to the mitzvahs, according to Torah. But something very strange is, that, is at the core of this question, because if you think about it without, without a question, the foundation, the core, the center of our focus as a Mesorah is always Zechel Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. And the Ramban, the Ramban says in Parshas Bo, one of the most famous Rambans, he says almost all of our mitzvos, especially the core mitzvos, are centered around this idea of Zechel Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. So when it comes to Shabbos, when it comes to Shema, when it comes to Kiddush, when it comes to Tzitzis, when it comes to Tefillin, we're always remembering Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. And is that logical? And we're going to build up this question the more we go into this year, but I want to frame this as, the, as, as a question to keep in the back of your mind. Why would it be more important to have Zechel Yitzhiyam as opposed to Zechel Ma'an Torah? I mean, one of the most basic 
problems with this is that the entire goal of VCs and Shrine was to get to Mantora. And Mantora was the, was where we experienced Hashem, where we received the mitzvahs. It's like, if you're going to open up an album with, with your wife or with your husband and remember, uh, you know, the, the paradigmatic memory of what your relationship is all about, are you going to go back to the first date? Are you going to go back to the engagement? Or are you going to the, the wedding album where we married Hashem? That's what Mantora was about. That's what Shavuos is about. So obviously, Yitzhiz Mitzrayim is core. It's essential. But can it be compared to Mantora? Can it be compared to the marriage, the engagement, or the, the you know, the quote-unquote first date? But the engagement was Yitzhiz Mitzrayim. That's the Ayerson. But the Nesun, the marriage, that was Mantora. So why do we root everything back to Zeichel Yitzhiz Mitzrayim? That's something I want you to keep in the back of mind. We're going to give several different approaches, but something which is not simple. It's a genuine question, and it's a good question. And we're not going to just give an answer, because the question needs to be strengthened, because it's not just a simple question of what's more important. As you'll see, it'll get a lot deeper. But what I want to do is I want to delve really deep into the difference between Yitzhiya Sinsraya and Ma'an Torah. And this is, this is such a powerful topic. It is such a core topic. It contains really so many principles, which each of the ideas that we're going to delve into really requires a whole sheer. So this is a core topic. This is not just sharing a beautiful idea. This is going to the very heart and core of, of identity as a Jew, what it means to be Jew, belief in Hashem, emunah, bitachon, the, the essential core ideas that every sincere Jew should be grappling with and thinking about. We're going to really go to the heart and core of it. And obviously you, you can't contain everything in one shear, but I want to really delve deep into it. So because the shear is going to be deep and it's going to be long, I'm going to recommend that for those of you who don't want to, who, or who can't listen to the entire thing at once, that's okay. Because this is not, you know, for me, it took me years and years to develop this one shear. So if it, if you want to listen to it twice, if you want to listen to it in parts, that's completely fine. It's obviously going to be recorded. It'll be on Touring Time. It'll be on my website. It'll be in audio formats all over the place. But this is not just a, a beautiful, inspirational shear. This is a shear which is going to require focus, concentration. If it were me listening to this the first time, just trying to get back into a headspace before I would know these ideas, I would want to have, I would want to be taking notes. I would want to be thinking about this. Uh, this is one of the most important ideas that, in my opinion, anyone can think about. And we're going to the core of so many essential things. So I know I've, I've kind of you know, built this up, but I hope you'll see how important these ideas are. And the question that I want to delve into is, what is the difference between Yitzhiya Mitzrayim and Ma'an Torah? Because the, the Ramban says that we learn almost all of the Ikari Amuna from Yitzhiya Mitzrayim. So if you go to Yitzhiya Mitzrayim, Hashem revealed himself to the world. So Hashem exists. And Hashem revealed that he's all-powerful, that he can overturn nature, or he revealed that there is no such thing as nature, meaning that everything is the will of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that, you know, the reason why things go up and down, or why water is water and not blood, or why, you know, ice and fire can't synthesize as one, like, that is not a fundamental rule. That's because Hashem willed that into existence, and Hashem can change that, and... Everything is subject to the will of Hashem. Hashem also revealed Hashgach Pratis. He revealed reward and punishment, that he's engaged in the world, sees what's going on, and that if you do something wrong, you can get punished, do something right, you can get rewarded. We're not going to go into all of the different Ikari Muna, 
because that once again would require really a whole series to delve into the Egin Karimuna and really delve into the nature of those specific 13. But on a very simple level, Hashem revealed his existence to the world in a fundamentally different way by Etzias Mitzrayim. We've actually just gave a shear a couple weeks ago on the difference between how Hashem revealed himself to the Avos, Kel Shakaya Elkim, versus Yudke Vavke. He tells Moshe, I'm going to reveal through the media of Yudke Vavke, and we really delved into what that means. And if you didn't listen to that shear, you're more than welcome to. It's online. But I want to really delve into the Rambam's question. The Rambam challenges the miracles of Gitzias Mitzrayim and the miracles of the Midbar and says that there was something very limiting about those miracles. And I'm going to, you can look up this Rambam. It's in Hilchas Yisodei HaTorah, in the Mishnah Torah. It's in Perek Ches. The Rambam says that when it comes to Klai Yishol's belief in Hashem and belief in Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy, that Previous miracles were not enough. The miracles of Yitzhiya Mitzrayim, of the Midbar, they weren't enough. Shamamin apia osos, yesh belibodofi. Because someone who believes in Moshe, believes in Hashem, just because of those miracles, those signs, yesh belibodofi, there is in his heart some lack, some, some doubt. And he says, why? Because maybe... Those were done belat v'kishuf, right? She'efshar she'yasa os belat v'kishuf. Elakol also she'asa Moshe b'midbar lafi hatzarech asam lo lehevi raya ala nevuah. So all of those miracles, one could have thought that maybe they were done belat v'kishuf. So what's la and kishuf? It really means la is like shadim, it's like sorcery, and kishuf is also a form of sorcery. It's using you know dark energy. We're not going to get into what those. Ideas are, that's a whole uh, medieval discussion about how the Rambam saw uh, these types of concepts and ideas. But the Rambam is making a very interesting argument. He's saying that Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim and really the miracles of the Midbar, for example, Pierre Miriam and the Nani HaKavod and all the miracles, the Mun, all these miracles, Kriyas Yamsuf, all of these miracles were limited. They were done because Kleisron needed them. And, and, And it doesn't prove without a doubt that Hashem exists, that Moshe's prophecy was correct. There's something limiting, I wouldn't say problematic, but limiting in that you can question it, it can be doubted. But then the Rabbin says that Ma and Torah, that was fundamentally different. That's fundamentally different, right? So he says at the end, he says something very interesting. He says, so before Ma'an Torah, before Harsinai, you could have questioned, you could have doubted, but Ma'an Torah, Harsinai, that was 100% proof. So now it seems very clear that Ma'an Torah was something fundamentally different than Yitzhiya Mitzrayim. That the previous miracles of Yitzhiya Mitzrayim, even in the Midbar, those were miracles that were important, they were good, they were miraculous, but they weren't the ultimate. And you could have questioned them, you could have said, maybe it was really sorcery, maybe Moshe was doing this, that's what the Mitzvah originally challenged Moshe, they said, you're not real, this isn't Hashem, this is you, you're just a great sorcerer. But he says the Harsinai, according to the Ram, Harsinai and Torah, when Hashem revealed himself at Harsinai, that was something fundamentally different. So it would seem now that the root of our emuna, the root of our belief in Hashem, in Moshe's prophecy, comes from Harsinai, comes from Ma'an Torah. So once again, why is the root of our Messorah, Yitzhiya Mitzrayim? Why is everything Zeich Leitzhiya Mitzrayim? And 
just to, to deepen this, we need to question, why is Ma'an Torah better? Why is Ma'an Torah? Why is Shavuos, what we're commemorating in Shavuos, what we're tapping into and connecting to in Shavuos? Remember, when it comes to Chagim, we don't remember, we re-experience, we tap into, we relive them, we take it to a, to a further level. So when it comes to this Shavuos, we're not remembering what happened, we're re-tapping into Kabbalah Satorah, the experience of Kabbalah Satorah. But the question is, why is that better than Yitzhak Mitzrayim? Why is, why Yesh Belibo Dofi when it comes to Yitzhak Mitzrayim and the, the previous miracles, but Ma'an Torah, there's you know, no doubt whatsoever. So we're going to try to understand this because it's not simple. There's no simple answer. So, so one aspect is that you can say that Yitzhak Mitzrayim was, was a good proof. It's like 70%, 80%, 90%, 99%, but it wasn't perfect. Ma'an Torah, Kabbal Satorah, when we met Hashem at Harsin, that was 100%. We met, that, that was so much better. And you can even say it, the, the Kuzari of Yehuda Levi, he develops this idea that Klai Yisrael has experienced the only open revelation to an entire Klal, a whole community of people. So there's no doubt, it wasn't that Moshe came down and said, I met Hashem. The Chazal said that the first two Hebrews, Hashem himself spoke them. It was a, a transcendent experience. So we're talking about a fundamentally different type of proof than Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And it's it's also, I mean, we're not going to go into this now, but every other religion doesn't have that claim. When it comes to other religions, they claim that an individual had this divine prophetic experience and then came out and revealed it to everyone else. For Kleistral, we wouldn't, Moshe didn't, for, for the last eight Dibros, Moshe told it because it was so overwhelming. We're not going to go into this right now, but Kleistral's neshamas even left their bodies when Hashem spoke. But the first two Dibros, Hashem himself spoke. It was open revelation for everyone. So, the question, just before we delve deeper into this, one important question that many people ask is that that's not good enough for me. Because that's great for Klyistrel. They were there. But what about me? I wasn't there. I wasn't at Harsina. I didn't receive the Torah. I wasn't there. And it's a famous question for why are we chayv in the Torah? We didn't commit to the Torah. Our ancestors committed to the Torah back, you know, when they were at Harsina. We weren't there. So the Ramban develops this powerful idea which is, number one, the Ramban says that there's a Mesorah. He says, very interesting, says, um, <clears throat> because there's a Mesorah, he says, if you look at it, it's in Dvarim, is Pershan Torah, Dvarim, Perek, Dalad, Pasuk, Das. He says, Ki'ilu ruhu kolador. So it's like everyone's like, Ki'lo ne'en sheker levanin, Ki'lo ne'nachil osam davar hevel, ve'en bam, I'm not going to go into the whole Lashon the Ramban, but he develops this idea that parents don't like their children, and there's a Mesorah. So you can question this, but the Rabban has a beautiful answer, is that we have a tradition, we have a Mesorah, you know, generation to generation of what happened, and we carry on that Mesorah. And that's really what the Seir night is about. We, Pesach, we, we carry on that Mesorah. But the, the question for why it should apply to you and I is still there, meaning, once again, we weren't there. It's great that they experienced this, but did I experience it? So the Shlach HaKadosh, who actually, I'm a descendant of the Shlach HaKadosh, he says something extremely powerful. He says that every single Jewish neshama was at Har Sinai. And you were there. You did experience it. And you were actually at Ma'an Torah itself. And he says this beautiful idea, which also applies to Girim. Girim, they were also at Ma'an Torah. They were one of the, they were the individuals of the other Amim who, while the, gener- while the, the other nations refused to join into Klai Yisrael and accept the Torah, individuals did want to accept it. So those are the individuals who have that inclination to join into Klai Yisrael, uh, to be Mechabal, to be Mechabal the Torah. 
and they're simply returning to their root of when they originally accepted it at Harsinai. So, so we have this idea developing. So, so we basically have so far developed this idea that Yitzhak Mitzrayim was somewhat limited. Ma'an Terah was superior in some sense. So maybe Yitzhak Mitzrayim was a really good proof. It was 99% or 80%, whatever it is. And Ma'an Terah is 100%. No questions. Yesh Belibodofi doesn't apply to that. So another advantage of Ma'an Torah, besides for the fact that there was a mass revelation to everyone, and we have a Mesorah, and the fact that Hashem revealed himself to us, there's another important aspect which the Ramban develops again in Parak Dal of Dvarim, where he says that Ma'an Torah ensured that no future Navi would contradict the Torah. So this is a related point, because what's the importance of Ma'an Torah? The importance that Hashem himself gave us the Torah. So if another Navi comes in the future and says, I'm giving you a new Torah, different Torah, then Hashem himself gave us that original Torah and said that if a Navi comes in the future and rejects this Torah, it's not true. So not only was Ma'an Torah a better proof than Yitzhak Mitzrayim, but it, was, it ensured the validity of the Torah. It ensured that no future Navi can come and contradict it because we now... Remember, the Rambam says that you have 100% proof in Hashem and Moshe's prophecy because of Ma'an Torah. And because of that, it says in the Torah that if a future Navi comes and contradicts the Torah, he's a Navi Sheker. So it provides the validity of Torah itself. So, so far we've basically developed how Ma'an Torah is a better proof. And it's also because of, its, because of the fact that it's such an unquestionable proof, we know about the Torah's validity and how no one can ever contradict in the future. But now we have a really important question. Now we have perhaps <laughs> the most important question we're going to ask right now is, why were the why were the miracles of Mitzrayim even done? If the miracles of Mitzrayim were limited, you can doubt them, you can question, maybe it's not Hashem, maybe it's a sorcerer, maybe it's just Moshe Rabbeinu. Why were they done? What was the purpose of the miracles of Mitzrayim? If it's about Emunah and Hashem, Ma'an Torah was so much better. And if it was the free Klai Yisrael, there were so many other ways Hashem could have just taken Klai Yisrael out. What was the purpose, of, according to according to Chazal, it was a year long of Makos. What was the purpose of the Makos if Hashem was going to provide a much better revelation, much better proof of His existence to Klai Yisrael in Torah? So, so that's a really good question, but it gets even, it, it can strengthen the question, it can deepen the question, because why is everything Zeichelitis Mitzrayim if Zeichelitis Mitzrayim is actually not the source of where we have the ultimate proof of Hashem's existence? And to take it a step further, you can think of it like this. Like, we, we talked about the, how the entire goal is of Yisim Mitzrayim is to get to Mount Torah. When you talk about a real goal, the, the, like you focus on, on that destination. That was where we married Hashem. But you can strengthen the question even further. Because, okay, fine. So we're, we're now saying that Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim should not be the root of our Mesorah because the miracles of Ma'an Torah were even better. But is that true? Meaning, meaning everything we've developed so far itself can be questioned. Because think of it like this. Think of it like this. Hashem himself says that the miracles of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim need to reveal his existence to the world. It's, it's unbelievable. If you think about it, Hashem says, what's the purpose of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? Laman Yedu, so that they know, so that, so that you know that I exist. How can we say they weren't good enough to prove Hashem's existence? It's like, 
I just want you to understand like the, how we built this. We built this Yitzhi Mitzrayim is limited. Mantor is better. So why is everything rooted in Yitzhi Mitzrayim? But is that really true? Yitzhi Mitzrayim is limited. It doesn't reveal Hashem's existence. If you look at the Torah, Hashem specifically tells Moshe that the entire purpose of the miracles and makos of Yitzhi Mitzrayim is to reveal to Klai Yisrael that I exist. Hashem says explicitly, Leman Teida. He says like five or six times to Moshe that I want Klai Yisrael to know that I exist. And for the Mitzrim, it was supposed to be a good enough proof to the Mitzrim too. He says, Hashem says, once again, Laman Yidu. I, I want not only Klai Yisrael, but the Mitzrim to know that I exist. So one second. If we're saying Ma'an Torah is, is the, it's the, it's the ultimate revelation, Yitzhak's time is limited, Hashem himself said that the purpose of Yitzhak's time is to reveal his existence to the world. So how can we say it's limited? Hashem himself thinks it's good enough. And not only does Hashem say that that's my goal, but it actually happens. The, the Torah specifically tells us that the, the Khartoumim, the, the sorcerers, uh, they tell Paro that we can't do some of these miracles when it comes to Kinnam, when it comes to life, so it's too small, we're not going to get into the details there. The idea is that when it comes to evil, it can't apply once you get to the non-physical realm, but once you transcend sheer size. But we're not going to really delve into this idea because that really requires a, a whole a whole nother sheer. But what happens? The Khartoumim tell Paro that this is the etzbet lokimi. This is the finger of Hashem. This is Hashem. This isn't Moshe. This isn't some great sorcerer. So, so now we have a real problem. Because the Rambam says that there's something wrong with Yitzhak Mitzrayim. It's limited. But Hashem himself says that the miracles of Yitzhak Mitzrayim are going to reveal to Klai Yisrael that Hashem exists. And they're going to reveal to the Mitzrayim that Hashem exists. And clearly Klai Yisrael believed in Hashem when they left Mitzrayim. But the Mitzrayim themselves say that that this is Hashem. This is not some sorcerer. This is, this is Hashem. So what is going on here? How can we... How can we say that the miracles of Yitzhak's time were limited? So there, there's a potential answer you can give. One answer you could give is you can say that it was enough for the Mitzrayim. It wasn't enough for the Jews. For the Jews, they needed more. But wait a second. First of all, why is that true? Why should it be that Kleistral need a better proof? Shouldn't everyone need a, a, a perfect proof that Hashem exists? But Hashem says that he wants to reveal his existence not only to the Mitzrayim, but to Kleistral. So, so something is something strange is going on here. Is are the miracles of Yitzhak Mitzrayim limited or aren't they? And if they aren't, what does Mount Torah provide that Yitzhak Mitzrayim doesn't? And if they are limited, how come Hashem thinks they aren't? How come Hashem says I'm going to reveal myself to Mitzrayim through the miracles of Yitzhak Mitzrayim through the Makos? So th- this is this is really a, a, a fantastic fantastic question. Whenever you want to delve into something deep, you want to make sure that you're invested. You want to make sure there's a really good question you're trying to answer. This is a good question. There is no simple answer to this. We're going to really need to to, to delve into this in a much deeper way. And to do that, I want to open up into a really profound topic, which once again questions another premise of this entire buildup, which is, is... Ma'an Torah really unquestionable? Is the proof of Kabbalah Satorah, was that really, the Rambam says that no, that's only for Yitzhak Mitzrayim. For Ma'an Torah, our eyes saw, our ears heard, it was Hashem himself, no questions whatsoever. Is that true? What do I mean by that? 
if you think about it, anything can be questioned. The Tzadik is actually famous for saying that if Aristotle was at Marcina, it was at Mount Torah, the next day he'd wake up and say it was all an illusion, it was all some hallucination, it was all fake. Anything can be questioned. And I want to really delve into this because what do I mean by that? The simple answer as we developed is that Yitzhia's Mitzrayim was a good proof. It was a good enough proof. It was 70%, 80%, 98%, 99%. It wasn't 100 In Matan Torah, that was 100 That was perfect. So we need Matan Torah to fill in the gaps, any potential holes, any potential problems. But if you think about it, as we just began to say, you can question anything. There's no such thing as a 100% rational proof. No such thing. Anything, anything that you think you know can be questioned. Everything can be doubted. Now, when it comes to knowledge of Hashem, knowledge of Hashem's existence, rational proofs are great. You know, proof by design. You look at the world, it's, it's extraordinary. Every, you look, learn biology, learn physics, learn science, learn psychology, learn mathematics, learn anything in, in this extraordinary world that we live in, and you'll be in awe. You'll say, it's impossible for this to just happen by accident. There must be a designer or a creator. It's like people say that the chances of this world coming into existence randomly by accident, just a random Big Bang, uh, the chances that a monkey throws ink at... Uh, at a painting, at a canvas, and it comes out like a perfect picture, like a Da Vinci. Or it's the same. It's the chances like a hurricane comes comes over an automobile, uh, you know, pieces and parts of of automobiles, and the hurricane just randomly puts together a brand new car. Is this possible? Of course, it's possible. Is it likely? It's not likely. Chances are like one. You know, who knows how small the chances are. So, is it possible? But look at the world. There must be that there's a creator. But that's not a 100% proof because there are holes in that. Every rational proof has holes. There's the, the idea of everything has a source. So if you, you what's your source? Your parents. What are your parents' source? Their parents. Everything comes from something else. Everything has a cause. So what's the first cause? What's the initial cause of reality? What caused the world to come into existence? So, you know, for Aristotle, that was the prime mover. For, and you can say that that's Hashem. Hashem is the first cause. Ah, oh, but doesn't everything cause? So what's that first cause is a cause? So no, no, once you get outside the realm of time and space, that cause doesn't have a cause. So that's an extraordinary proof. That's a great idea, but it's not foolproof. Every rational proof has some loophole, some problem, some question, it's some leap of faith. You have to still take some level of, of I'm choosing to believe in this. Now here's the question. The question is, what can we actually know? Because reason, science, philosophy, logic, those are all limited. I mean, if you think about it, science nowadays, as far as we've come as human beings, the weather is still not a science that we have a handle on. If you think about it, the weatherman is, is very often very off. Sometimes it rains when he tells us it's going to be sunny. We cannot tell the weather, especially far off in advance. We are limited in our use of reason, logic, and science. There are certain things that, that just are... are they evade, they transcend scientific tools. And when it comes to knowledge of Hashem, as great as reason is, there are always going to be potential problems in our rational proofs. And, you know, forget knowledge of Hashem for a second. Everything you think you know, everything that you rely on in your life, to live your life, 
I don't think it's going to ever be 100%. And I'll, I'll give you some examples. When you fly in a plane, there is a chance, chas v'shalom, it should never happen to you or anyone you know or anyone for that matter, but there's a chance that it has happened that it will crash. So why do you go on a plane? I mean, when you walk across the street, people, you know, unfortunately, they, they die because things happen. When you go into a surgery, you should never have to go into a surgery. When people go into a surgery, there's no such thing as a surgery that is 100%. You know, there's such unfortunate... I mean, obviously, there's really risky surgeries, but even surgeries that are, like, near perfect, that almost never go wrong, they go wrong. And they go wrong at the wrong times. I mean, there are countless stories. of You get a kidney uh, kidney donation. It's supposed to be, you know, almost 100% that everything should go right. There are stories where it doesn't. And yet people take their risk. I mean, if you think about it, when you go onto a footbridge, you test it out. Oh, you see if it's sturdy, if it can hold your weight. Do you know that it's going to hold your weight? Do you know that you're going to make it to the other side? Like you don't have, you, that's not how we live our lives. So just let's make a clear distinction. Practically living our lives, we do not go for 100%. We go for good enough. I mean, the footbridge is a good example because you don't know if your step is going to be you know, landing on a firm piece of wood or if that wood will crack in half and you'll fall down into the, into the ravine below. But how do you know? That every step you take on the street, that some you know somehow the, the floor won't fall out from underneath you and you'll fall to the middle of the earth, the center of the earth. You don't know. Now, is that likely? Is it is it reasonable to live your life that way? <laughs> Absolutely not. Is it possible? Has anyone ever fallen while walking into some hole that they didn't think was there? Of course. But we don't actually know. I mean, if you really think about it, I mean, this is, if some people think this is funny, but marriage... Marriage is a risk. Uh, people get married and they think I'm going to be happy. I mean, I'm not going to get into why many people get divorced, but it's it's a risk. If you're able, and obviously when you get married, you think it's 100%, but nothing we do is ever 100%. We always engage in some level of, of you call it belief in the system, belief that it will work out, being an optimist, whatever you want to call it, but we don't live our lives with 100% certainties. And and it gets actually much more, I, mean, I wouldn't say troubling, but I would say interesting, because if you think about the most essential parts of your identity, you're also living with good enough proof. You don't have 100%, 100% proof of really anything about who you are. How do you know you're Jewish? How, how do you know you're Jewish? Because your parents told you. How do you know they're Jewish? Because their parents told them. I know something for the, in the past 1,000 years of your lineage, of your uh, of your yichus. I know something didn't go wrong. Now, for some of you, you might actually know all of this, but you definitely do not have a 100% proof. For, for a lot of people, they don't have any proof whatsoever. They literally just believe their parents. But even for people who actually investigate their lineage, there's no such thing as 100% proof of anything. I mean, think of it like this. How do you know that your parents are your parents? How, how do you know? Were you there? Uh, of course I was there. Do you remember? No, you don't remember. <laughs> of course you don't remember. How do you know that your parents then just like where they were going on a date and they saw a beautiful child and they said, hey, it looks a little bit like you. It looks a little bit like you. Let's just, how do you know? How do you, I mean, the, obviously you, you don't. You have to believe or at least take the word for it. You can do research. You can do whatever you want. There, I mean, I, most people don't do research, but how do you know 100% anything that you have, so to speak, 
believed about yourself and your identity. Um, I mean, th this one for me was, was, was kind of like took it to another level, but Bertrand Russell is famous for saying, how do you know that you weren't created five minutes ago? How do you know that your memories are real? Maybe you were created five minutes ago with all of your memories in place and you're actually five minutes old and so is the entire universe, five minutes old. Is it possible? Of course it's possible. But is it likely? It's not likely. Are you going to live your life that way? No. But what I'm trying to develop here is that there is nothing that is 100%. You know, scientists actually give a great example of the sun. How do you know the sun's going to rise tomorrow? There's no proof the sun's going to rise tomorrow. It's what's called, it's a, it's a common and constant phenomenon, but there's no scientific proof or reason why it has to tomorrow. So, of course you believe the sun's going to rise tomorrow, but it's not 100%. Nothing that you know or believe is 100%. And the question is, how big, how big is this problem? Because on the one hand, it's not a big enough problem for us to change the way we live our lives, at least for most people. They're okay with not 100%. But the real question then is, what does rational knowledge provide us with? If someone says there's a 98% chance the surgery will go well, what does that do? What that does is it gives us enough of a reason to validate the decision to do it. So for example, it's not going to give you 100%. There's still going to be an element of doubt, DHB Libodophy, but not enough that you will invalidate it. So rational proofs are really important, but they're not 100%. And that's, and, and, you know, for, for people who are not comfortable with these ideas, these ideas can really be stirring. They can make you question things. But Immanuel Kant, Immanuel Kant, who was famous for this idea, actually, you know, Jewish thinkers have been sharing this idea for thousands of years, but in the Western world, especially in the realm of philosophy, Kant is famous for, for questioning the validity of our physical senses. You, know, you think that you are seeing the world the way it is, but you're not. You're seeing the world the way that your eyes translate physical phenomena through you know, refracted light, how it, the light comes into your retina, into your eyes. You're not feeling the thing itself. You have a, your brain sends a neural response when you touch something. It makes you have a sense of feel. But you don't know anything about anything itself. All you know is how your physical senses translate it. So, you know, I mean, the related point is you don't know what you look like. <laughs> All you know is what you look like when you look in a mirror. You have no idea what you look like. You have no idea if what you, how you see the world and experience the world is how someone else experiences it. I mean, one of the, the classic thought experiments is Maybe what you see as green is what someone else sees as blue, but you're taught to s that this is green. And when you both look at it, you're seeing different things, but you're calling it green. Or maybe you see blue and you're calling it green. I mean, you don't know anything about how things actually are, how other people experience it. All you know is how you experience life. And now the question is, what is real? What, are you, what do you actually know? What can you know? What should you know? What have you attained that's in epistemology? How do you gain knowledge of things if you can only use your five senses? So also use your intellect, use your mind, you learn Torah. But these are all questions of how you gain insight, gain knowledge. Is what does Torah, what is Torah knowledge relative to using reason? This was a classical medieval question that the, the Rambam really grappled with is, you know, what's the relationship between philosophy and Torah truth? And how do I gain access to the absolute truth? And what 
What is absolute truth? What can I know using any of my faculties, using my five senses, my imagination, my intellect, my, you know, like, these are real questions that you should be thinking about. How do I know things? What do I know? So the, getting back to our questions, and again, like this is a lot, a lot to think about, a lot to deal with, but the question is like this. What did Yitzhiya Mitzrayim provide? What type of knowledge? What did Ma'an Torah provide? And if Yitzhiya Mitzrayim was enough, why do we need Ma'an Torah? If Yitzhiya Mitzrayim isn't enough, why Hashem say that Yitzhiya Mitzrayim is enough and I'm going to reveal myself to Klai Yisrael and to the Mitzrayim? And the Mitzrayim said that it was enough. That's Bela Kimhi. So we need to really try to understand what's going on here. And if, if Ma'an Torah can also be questioned because everything can be questioned, there's no such thing as 100% proof, then how is Ma'an Torah really better than Yitzhiya Mitzrayim? It's, it's all, like every single step of this entire equation needs to really be thought out. And we need to really, what I want to do is I want to develop something extremely powerful. And to do so, I really want to delve into into what Ma'an Torah really provided. What was the fundamental difference about Ma'an Torah? that did something that Yitzhi Yitzhi simply couldn't. And once again, the question, what did Yitzhi Yitzhi do? So the simple answer of why Yitzhi Ma'an Torah is better is that it was a better proof of Hashem's existence or it was to, pre- it was to prevent a Navi Shekhar, as we explained by the Rambam, and the Rambam actually says this too. But there's a much deeper answer here. And the deeper answer is that Ma'an Torah introduced a different type of knowledge. What does that mean? Sounds, it sounds great, but what does that mean? So what I want to develop now is, is a realm of deep Jewish thought which opens up an entire realm, meaning every single deep shear is connected to this idea. When we talk about Mahsha, when we talk about deep Torah thought, this is the quintessential, this is the essential fundamental idea we're talking about. And the concept is like this. The concept is that there's, there's a different type of knowledge a knowledge that is different than rational knowledge. And that different knowledge is called das, it's called experiential knowledge, it's called deeper internal intrinsic knowledge. And we're going to try to understand what this is. Well, what is this type of knowledge? But to do so, I want to delve a little deeper into the limits of rational knowledge of Hashem. Because we began to develop this idea that everything can be questioned. There's no such, no such thing as something that's 100%. But there are some limitations of rational knowledge. Number one, rational knowledge is external. So the way that you know something rational is, is by knowing that it exists, you know about it, your connection with it is limited though. Because if you know through rational proofs that Hashem exists, let's say and the world's so beautiful, so I know Hashem must exist. Or, it's, I mean, beautiful, like what well, it's organized, it's designed. The, or everything must have a root, so Hashem must be the ultimate root of existence. That tells you Hashem exists, but all it does is tell you it exists. It doesn't tell you anything about Hashem. You have no cash or no relationship with Hashem. You don't really have any, have any, there's nothing more than external knowledge that Hashem exists. And you don't have a relationship. You don't know anything really about Him. You don't know, there's no way to have a cash with Him. You just know that He exists. That's it. And besides for it being external knowledge, it's the fact that rational knowledge itself breaks down. It's limited. Uh, mathematics, philosophy, it, it always eventually breaks down to a certain extent. And, and the same thing, and I'm not going to get into it now, but Zeno's paradox, uh, the concept of time mathematically breaks down. Oh, if, I'll just briefly share with you. Basically, the, the paradox is that 
mathematically, there's an infinite amount of points between any two points. So there's an infinite amount of points between my two fingers. And mathematically, because there's an infinite amount of points, every time I go, let's say, halfway, I should always be able to go halfway closer to these fingers, meaning these fingers should never touch because if there's an infinite number of points between them, then I can always get halfway closer, and yet my finger can pass the other one, which doesn't make sense because mathematically, there should, no, there should not be movement. Mathematically, one thing should never be able to pass another thing, and that's why Zeno, his famous paradox, says that time just doesn't make any sense. Movement doesn't make any sense. And mathematically, the concept of the present, there's no such thing. Uh, the present really shouldn't exist because it's the infinitesimal point between the past and the future. So where is it? If you can always get infinitely closer, meaning if this is the past and this is the present and this is the future, and this point in the middle is the present, you can always get infinitely closer. Once again, we're not going to really get into its mathematics, but basically the present is a paradox. But I want to just go with, I know that these are abstract ideas, complex ideas, but I want to delve a little deeper into, into the limitations of rational knowledge. Because what is, how, in order to relate to how experiential knowledge, how DAS, how internal intrinsic knowledge is superior, you need to really understand how, how reason breaks down. And, and what I want to do is I want to give you some, some thought examples of where you can really see this play out. But just before we do, I want to briefly just explain that Experiential knowledge, das, is something you know intrinsically deep within yourself without the need for rational proofs. And it's it's something that transcends reason or logic. It's something which, it, it's not faith or belief, it's a higher form of knowledge. And the reason why I want to go back, I want to go back to the introductory story I gave you of the alien with the different forms of knowing chocolate. And remember that when he heard about it, that was external knowledge. And then he saw it. And he felt it, he touched it. But when he tasted it, it was something that was so real, something so experiential. And even to a certain extent, like each of those are higher forms of knowledge. But when, and obviously that, that's not experiential knowledge, it's not DAS, but that's just showing you levels of knowing something, becoming more intimate, more internal, more intrinsic. But when we talk about DAS, when we talk about internal, deeper experiential knowledge of Hashem, we're talking about something so deep and so fundamental and I want to give you some examples of DAS, of intrinsic internal knowledge, so you start to understand the difference between DAS and external rational knowledge. So the first example I like to give is how do you know that you're awake right now? If you are. <laughs> I hope you are. <laughs> how do you know you're awake right now? And the reason why this is a great question is because, first of all, you have no proof you're awake right now. There's no such thing as a rational proof. And the reason why there are also there's no such thing as a rational proof is that when you're asleep and dreaming, you think you're awake. So how do you know you're not dreaming right now? Listening to this, you know, <laughs> this great chair. How do you know you're not dreaming right now? You don't. There's no way of you getting outside of yourself to do a, a test to know whether or not you're awake right now. The reason you know you're awake right now is that you know. There is no way to give a rational proof. And Descartes was famous for saying, how do you know that you exist? And there, there was a philosophy professor, famous story, a philosophy professor, professor who, who gave a whole lecture on how we have no philosophical way of proving that you exist because you can't really have a control. You can't get outside of yourself to prove whether or not you exist. So he basically left off the lecture saying that we have no proof whether or not we exist. And one of the students came over to the professor really troubled and he said, professor, do I exist? Do I exist? Can you please give me a proof that I exist? And the professor said, who wishes to know? Now, that's a very famous, just mean philosophy joke, because he basically played on the guy's philosophical 
convictions. But the idea is that there's no way of proving that you exist. Now, Descartes famous for saying, I think, therefore I am. And that's his proof for existence. What that really means is that I am the one who is asking the question whether or not I exist. And that is my proof that I exist because I am the questioner. Which really just means that I experience myself existing. I know I exist. I can't rationally prove it. But the experience of myself existing and being able to contemplate my own existence itself is my personal experiential internal das, my internal proof, my internal experience that I exist. And I will say, that especially for those that are not philosophically inclined and for those who are philosophically inclined, experience is often confused with emotion. And when we talk about experience, we're not talking about emotional proof. We're not talking about what this means to you, whether it's whether you connect with it. That's something entirely different that we can discuss, you know, the pros and cons of that type of idea a different time. But when we talk about experiential knowledge, we're talking about something absolutely fundamentally deep. And just so you understand, if you, if you really analyze any genuinely deep philosophical Torah source, the end point of the philosophical inquiry will always take you to this higher level of the Asana experience. And that and any like real deep, true Torah source will have that which transcends reason. Now, the Rambam's Mordevuchim is a famous historical question. If you actually look at the end of Mordevuchim, he does actually talk about something beyond reason, which for those of you who know what I'm talking about, who know that the Mordevuchim is a famous work that is very philosophical. And the question many people ask historically is whether or not the Mordevuchim believes that the ultimate truth is rational or actually goes higher to something beyond reason and you know nevuah as being something beyond reason but that's that's something which really requires so much analysis and something which we're not going to go into right now but that's why there were many who questioned the the validity and the significance of the mornevuchim as a as a jewish work only because of the questions that surround it. And for those of you who are familiar with this or have learned mornevuchim you know exactly what i'm talking about for those of you who don't this is a very famous question. So I want to just give you a couple other examples of of cases where reason itself is not enough. You need something beyond reason. So the next example I want to go into is the knowledge of free will. So modern science, modern philosophy questions the nature of free will. Do you have free will? Or is everything determined? Determinism. Is there basically, without getting into the question of Hashem's foreknowledge, the question of whether or not we have free will is now under scientific attack. So scientifically, it's not clear whether or not we have free will. But how do you know you have free will? Because you experience the struggle back and forth when you're going through a serious spiritual or a moral dilemma. You're debating whether or not to do something that you know is wrong. And you go through this genuine internal struggle. You know that you're in the control seat making the decision. So scientifically and philosophically there might be some questions some debates but free will is something that you experience so deeply within the very core of your inner self that this this form of das is something which is far superior to rational knowledge and another example is and this is something which we're going to delve into in a few minutes is, is the limitations of science how do you know that your life has meaning it's something so core and intrinsic to being a human being is that we know we're here for a reason. We know that our life is meaningful and purposeful. But scientifically and historically, they'll want to tell you that you're just an, uh, an advanced monkey. You're an advanced chimpanzee, evolution. You're not built by Salam Kim. Your life has no reason, but no meaning, no purpose. But 
you know deep within the core of your inner self that your life is, has meaning, that you're here for a purpose, that you're unique, that you can create something uh, extraordinary to contribute to the world no one else can. But there's no scientific proof for that. There's no rational proof for that. That's something you know deep within yourself. And, and I mean, very related. How do you know that you're a human being and not just an advanced chimpanzee? Meaning, how do you know that you have a neshama, that you're a spiritual being, that you can connect to the transcendent? How do you know? I mean, these are things that rationally and scientifically, there's no proof for them. But we know deep within the very core of your being. And another example is how do you know that there's something called morality? How do you know that there's something intrinsic, right or wrong? I mean, this is, this is at the heart and core of the problem of the Western world is that if this world is really just a, a random result of the Big Bang and we're just advanced chimpanzees, there's nothing right or wrong about anything. I mean, when a monkey steals a banana from another monkey, do we, we, we you know, you might laugh. You, you don't say, like, that's a, an evil monkey, a corrupt monkey doing something mean. She's trying to survive. When a lion kills a gazelle and eats it, do you say, that, that's uh, well, it's horrible. How can he do that? No, you say the lion's eating. Well, that's, that's just, you know, animal nature. But if we're advanced animals, then when we do things like that, when a human being steals or kills someone, it's the it's, it's trying to survive, he's doing what he needs to do, it's an advanced monkey. So so where does where does morality come into play? There is no morality. The reason why you can't kill and why you can't do those things is just a basic agreement, the societal, uh, uh, I mean, there's different ways of discussing it, but we're not going to get into the history of it, but it's a social contract. You basically agree not to do these things with each other and police will enforce it so that you can have a harmonious society where people aren't scared of getting killed at night. But it's not because it's really wrong. And this is, we're not going to get into it right now, but this was the, the heart and core of the Machlokas between Yaakov and Esav of whether things are intrinsic or practical. And you know, we've given Shirem on this before. It's a fantastic, fascinating, and deep topic. Is there any objective morality or are these things conventions? And I mean, that's, I'll give you one beautiful example. You ever think, why did Esav sell the Bechorah and then basically try to take it right back? But if Esav believed that there is no such thing as you know, right or wrong, or ownership for that matter. Everything is just a convention, then of course he didn't sell it to Yaakov. He sell it, steal it right back. There's no such thing as mine or yours or right or wrong. It's just based off of dominance and koach. You know, the, the mightiest, the dominant will survive. And morality, you know, without getting into Nietzsche's famous uh, critique of of Western morality, religious morality, how it's basically a creation of religion to make those who are mighty feel weak and those who are weak feel mighty. But the idea is that morality is fake and that there's no such thing. But if you're a Jew, if you're a human being for that matter, you feel this intrinsic sense of what's right and wrong. And that conscience is not just an evolutionary matter. It's because you're connected to your Tzalem You know what's wrong and what's right. You know the difference. And when you do what's wrong, you feel that I just betrayed myself. And not only did I betray Hashem, I betrayed who I'm supposed to be. That's not evolution. That's you're tapping into your core inner existential self. That's das. That's real knowledge. And is there any rational proof for what's right and wrong? The debate, maybe not. But you know it deep within yourself. And 
once you understand this idea, the, the, the distinction between rational knowledge and internal intrinsic knowledge, you see the entire world differently. Your eyes open up quite literally and figuratively because you start to see things through a spiritual lens. I mean, think about it. Love, marriage. There's no scientific or rational proof that love is real, that beauty is real. Maybe it's just something that we, you know, we think is real, but it's not. But of course, there's no rational proof. Love, oneness, connection, something real, something intrinsic, something internal, das, this inner sense of real oneness, that's something that can't be proven. It's not scientific. It's not rational. It's internal. It's intrinsic. It's core. It's something that you experience so deeply within yourself. If you have ever experienced genuine love, if you have any ever experienced, you know, seeing something genuinely beautiful, you don't need a rational proof for it. And once again, this is not emotional. This is not something that, like, I believe. I have a belief. No, no, no. You know, when it comes to certain things, having a belief or just emotionally deciding, like, that is a very inferior form of knowledge. Rational knowledge is superior to that. But experiential knowledge, deeper knowledge, internal knowledge, das, which I'm sure some of you, by the way, are somewhat confused because it is esoteric. It is transcendent. It is hard to put your finger on. What is this? But that type of knowledge is so far superior to rational knowledge because it is the heart, root, and core of all other knowledge. And and this really gets back into what we talked about for, uh, Immanuel Kant before, which really we've said the Jewish words have been talking about this for thousands of years. The fact that there is something spiritual that transcends your five senses, the fact that there is a spiritual core and heart of reality that is beyond the surface of the physical, there's no rational proof to that. I mean, I will, I will actually say that science is getting closer. Quantum physics and quantum science is getting closer to the spiritual core of reality. The fact that there is a consciousness, there is, there is a consciousness that, that is at the heart and core and root of the physical reality. There are scientists that are starting to become very, very religious the deeper they go into quantum physics and quantum science because they're starting to realize that the quantum core of reality is spiritual. It is transcendent, it's ethereal, it's, it's a consciousness. But I'm not gonna, we can't really get into that right now. But what are we trying to develop here? And this is so core, this is so core. There is that which transcends scientific rational knowledge. And one of the greatest ways of thinking of this is that many people, they think scientific knowledge is important. It is, science is extraordinary it's fascinating it's amazing and it's essential but the root and core of all physical wisdom is rooted in spiritualism and the reason for this is because looked in the torah and used the torah to create the physical world the physical world is an expression of the spiritual which means that all physical science and physical wisdom stems from spiritual science and spiritual wisdom of course you can learn physical wisdom but the heart and core and the root of physical wisdom is spiritual wisdom is the torah that's why Avraham looked into the physical world and was able to ascertain and come to spiritual truth. He used the physical to source it back to the spiritual. Shlomo HaMelech, he had the Torah. Hashem granted him all of Chachmas Torah. He was able to use Chachmas Torah, the wisdom of Torah, to understand all of physical wisdom, understand the entire physical world. You can go either way because the two are connected. Obviously, the ideal and the core is to go top down. The Torah is the root and the core. So there, you know, there's a... The whole discussion, Avram obviously got a, a very high level of understanding, but the Torah is the absolute core and the physical wisdom is the expression. So science can only tell you the what. Science can only tell you what exists in the physical world, that is. Can't tell you why. So 
you know, there's so many things that science cannot tell you. So science can't tell you why you're born. It can't tell you the purpose of your life. It can't tell you, you know, where you came from. Where were you before you were born into this physical world? And where are you going to go after you die and leave this physical world? Science, it can't really explain the nature of morality, of good and evil. It can't explain the concept of love. It can't explain, uh, you know, why there are ma- why are there males and females in the world? Why do you have to have a male and female to create a child? Well, why? So. I mean, we really should, we could, and I've, I've given it before, the really deep, essential, spiritual concepts of male and female. The Maharal goes deep into this idea and why Hashem created the world through the, the concepts of male and female. And why do, we even, why do we refer to Hashem as male? All of these ideas uh, are fundamental, but science can't tell you where, the, the, where laws come from. Well, why why there, are there any objective laws of both the physical world, why are those the physical laws of science, and also laws that we use in, in our, you know, our de- democracy. Why are those laws? Look, where does everything in the world come from? The why behind everything, you can only really find a why within spirituality, within Torah. And, and I mean, one last example I can give is why is, why is something beautiful if it's beautiful? Why is that beautiful? Why do we think, if, if we agree something is beautiful, why? So these things are beyond reason, beyond science, they're even beyond words. And, you know, I'll just give you one great, we can really, we can really go into it later, but one great way to, to really show the distinction between rational knowledge and intrinsic internal knowledge is can you put it into words? go into this a little bit later but can you can you describe in words so Rav Chaim is famous for saying that when it comes to learning Gemara if you cannot put it into words you don't know it and the reason is because learning Gemara begin if you really learn a sugya open up a Gemara and learn a sugya if you really understand it you can put it into words you can describe it you can say it back in your own words when it comes to real deeper wisdom like what is it what does it mean to experience existence what does it mean to experience that you exist can't describe that it's beyond words anything that any words are used to describe it or like how do you know you exist I, I know can you describe it no no these things are beyond words and it's any deep intrinsic real form of knowledge you know so deeply within yourself that you can't really put into words and you can actually see this if you ever experience something extraordinary in your own life you see like wow or like oh why? Because it's so amazing that to put it into words and describe it, it belittles what it actually is. There's no words. You're really just saying, like, I have no words to describe this. And that is a sign of some internal, deeper, true experience. And it's not foolproof, but the idea is that when you know something so deeply, a Torah idea, which is a deep idea, not just, you know, uh, something, not, not just something simple, but something profound and deep, you know it's so deeply within yourself, but you can't really describe it. You can't really give it over in your own words. It's not because you don't know it. It's because you do know it. And it's because you know it so deeply that it can't exist in the realm of limitation, in the realm of words. And the paradox of Torah is that that type of wisdom was also given in the form of words. And the Maharal says something amazing. It says that Moshe Rabbeinu, his lisp, came not because he had a lack of knowledge, but because he was so deeply connected to that which is transcendent that he couldn't formulate finite words. He, had a, he couldn't speak. But the paradox is that 
And the miracle is that once Hashem created the Torah, which is a paradox of the infinite being expressed in finite words, it says, Vaidabra Moshe, that Dvarim, Hashem, Moshe spoke, Moshe was able to now speak in words, perfectly fine, once that paradox occurred. Because Moshe is Torah, Torah is Moshe. So once the Torah was given over, once the infinite, the, the Das, and the, once the Ratzon Hashem and the Chachmas Hashem was given over into the finite words of Torah Shabbat then Moshe was also able to express and connect the infinite to the finite. That was the paradox. But the idea here is so fundamental that rational knowledge is limited and experiential knowledge is deeper. So what, what's the point of all this? Why are we going into this? Because of the Ramchal in Das Tunos. So this is the answer. This is the distinction between Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and Ma'an Torah. Why? Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim was a rational proof. It was good enough. Proof that Hashem existed. Hashem revealed himself to the world. He was all-powerful. He existed. There's reward and punishment. But it was an external proof. We didn't know anything about Hashem. We didn't experience Hashem. We didn't come to know Hashem. There's no relationship with Hashem. But, and, and because of that, it was indirect. It was limited. So from the miracles, we, the Ramban says, that's how Hashem revealed the Karyamuna. We know Hashem exists. We know so many things that, about Hashem, but in a limited way. It wasn't the ultimate form of knowing Hashem. What's the ultimate form? That was Torah. Because Yitzhi Mitzrayim, that was good enough. That was good enough proof. That was a rational proof. But Torah was experiential proof. We experienced Hashem. What was the Torah experience? We have to, we really, we can give a whole shi'an this when we should and we hopefully will, and we have in the past, but what was Torah? And because this is a part of a much larger shi'an, we can't go deep, deep, deep into this because that would really require at least a half hour. But Torah was an experience of Hashem himself. If, if you think about what, what Mantar was, the reason why Klai Yisrael died by the first two Dibros is because it was a completely spiritual experience. So our souls left our bodies because our bodies couldn't handle it. It was, it says, Rome as a Kolos, that Klai Yisrael saw sounds. You can't see sounds. Why do we see sounds by Harsinai? Because the Mantar experience was a taste of Olam Haba. One way to think of it is that like, this world is a place of movement. Right? I can move my hands. I move through time. It's a, it's a place where you can grow and become. You can create yourself. Ulam Haba is where you experience everything you become. It's static. Roy Mesakolos sounds you hear through process. Seeing, you see all at once. Seeing sounds means that the entire process of reality, the physical world, was enveloped in the experience of Ulam Haba. We had a taste of Ulam Haba. I mean, Shabbos, that's the same idea. Shabbos is you stop the creative process and you experience, uh, it's me, Enol Mahaba, the Gemara says. The Gemara says that it's, it's a taste of Mahaba, it's Gemara Bracho, Staf, and Zion. It's, it's, Shabbos is me, Enol Mahaba, it's a taste of Olam Mahaba. Small taste, one sixtieth, you know, just a little taste. More than that, it's bittle. It's a, less than that, it's bittle. It's just a little taste of Olam Mahaba. So, if you think about it, this idea of Torah experience, was was something that was so transcendent, and we're not talking about whether it was a better proof, quali- you know, quantitatively. Is it ninety nine percent, hundred percent? Let's say the Yitzhak time was hundred percent rational proof. Mantor was a qualitatively different proof. It wasn't a level of proof. It was the quality of the knowledge we experienced. Hashem, we met Hashem, we married Hashem. It was it was mamish a marriage. Harsinai was the canopy, it was the chuppah. And we talk about Shir Hashem, and we do like, the idea of marrying Hashem, being in a love relationship with Hashem. That's what being a Jew is. That's what we experienced at Harsinai. And this was such a deeper form of knowledge than Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And you can think of it as Yitzhak Mitzrayim as we, we 
we were engaged to marry Hashem, but Ma'antor was the actual marriage. And and I guess another marshal that you can use if you want to think about this is each time is like receiving letters from Hashem. So we know Hashem exists, but we've never met Him. In Mount Torah, we finally met Hashem. We met Hashem in the most intimate way and we married Him. We committed our lives to Him. And, and if you think about it, Ma'an Torah was the exclusive relationship between us and Hashem. It's where Klai Yisrael, where, where we entered into a unique relationship with Hashem. The Ma'akas by, by Yitzhiya Mitzrayim, that was universal. Everyone saw those. Ma'an Torah was something very personal and unique, something that was unique to, to us. We transformed into Klai Yisrael who married HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And it's possible that this is also Pshat in the Rambam, because he says, Yesh believe Ophi, that there was there is doubt by Yitzhiya Mitzrayim, but what's the doubt? The doubt is not the the level of proof, but it's the nature of the knowledge, it's the quality of the proof. And that's why he says that, if you actually look inside, he says that, you know, other types of knowledge it fades. Like rational knowledge is not, it's not internal, it's not deep, it's not something experiential, so it fades. But man, Torah is something that never fades, because something you experience is something so much more real. Rational knowledge, it fades. But, you know, we can go much deeper into this. The type of knowledge, let's hold off on this because we'll talk about this in a few minutes, but it fades not because you think it's no longer good proof, but it's not something that deeply, deeply affects you in terms of your level of consciousness, in terms of who you are and how you live your life. Rational knowledge is never good enough. You need something that becomes part of you, becomes intrinsic to you, becomes so connected to you. You don't learn Torah intellectually, you learn Torah to become Torah. To become one with Hashem. And that's a different level of knowledge. So uh, let's delve into this for just a few minutes because it really is important. So rational knowledge, it's not just that that it falls apart. It's that rational knowledge, it uses... So so I'm, I'm trying to think about how to put this into words because rationally both can be doubted. Rationally... Rational knowledge and experiential knowledge can be, and experiential knowledge can be doubted. So we're not talking about the level of proof. We're talking about the quality of the knowledge. Rational knowledge you use your intellect, you use your you use logical, you lose your your rational faculties. It's bina. It's midas bina, and you use calculations. It's you know it's you use proofs. It's incontrovertible. It's demonstrable. It's you become like a calculator or a machine with these types of proofs. But inner experience inner knowledge, the knowledge binds to you. It becomes part of you. You become part of it. There's no way of disconnecting yourself from the knowledge because it has become you and you have become the knowledge. It becomes part of, it becomes part of your consciousness. And I mean, part of this was like we just said, can you describe it into words? If you, can, you can't describe it in words because it's so beyond words. It's so much a part of you. But there's another level here really gets back to the Chet of Adam HaRishan, but all sin stems from rational knowledge. When something is das, when something is deeply internal to you, when you know something so deep that it's it becomes part and parcel of your identity and your existence, you will never, ever, ever mess up. 
You only mess up when you can block, because what is sin? Sin is blocking out intellectual, rational knowledge to, enhance, to basically engage in whatever you're not supposed to be doing. That can only happen when the knowledge is something that can be blocked out, something rational that can be pushed aside. But when something is so internal, so deep, so intrinsic to who you are, you can't block it out. So, for example, if you knew that when you eat or did whatever it is, or were about to engage in a sin, that you were going to cease to exist, of course you wouldn't do it. But what you can do, with the, the amazing thing about being human is you can block out aspects of your knowledge to engage in things that you know you shouldn't do, but because you want to do it. You have a different ratzon. You have a ratzon to be your best self. You have a ratzon to engage in not your best behavior. And you can cloud out your higher ratzon. You can cloud your higher self to engage in this. That's only because it's rational. If you, it's the wrong type of knowledge. If you can develop and build this correct knowledge, which is this higher internal das, that's how you overcome your Yitzhahara. But when you get to the point where it's so intrinsic and so a part of you that there's no way that you can mess up on it. And I'm not going to go deeper into this because I want to get back to our main question. But this is the heart and core of what it means to be a Jew. It's building this inner knowledge of self, building this inner Chachmas HaTorah, building this inner connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's developing this internal world, this internal mind, this inner Das, a relationship. A marriage without inner das, a marriage without this inner world, this inner this inner shared mind and self, this inner shared space, is it is not a genuine marriage and it will not be a genuine marriage. I'm not saying it will fall apart. I'm saying that that's not what a marriage could and should be. If you want to build a real marriage, a real relationship, it has to be one where there is such a genuine, deep, internal das connection where you, you come to know each other and yourselves in, in infinitely deeper ways always like every single day you're learning more about each other and yourselves and Hashem and it's this this infinite development of self and shared self where you don't lose yourself but find a deeper form of yourself within this building a shared self with each other and it's something that you you you're you're building and creating this oneness of self but not losing yourself but always redeveloping and re committing to developing a higher form of your individual selves and then investing that into your shared self. And then that shared self allows you to become an even better version of your individual self. And then you, it's this infinite relationship, but it's rooted in das. It's rooted in inner knowledge and inner awareness and inner connection, inner relationship. And many, many, many relationships, many friendships, but unfortunately many marriages are surface. The, the, you don't know each other and part of it is because you don't know yourself the, the first step of building an, an, a true amazing relationship is building a true amazing relationship with yourself then you can expand and build a true amazing relationship with you know your spouse your wife your husband with Kadesh Baruch with Klai Yisrael with your friends but it all starts with building an internal deep das within yourself and that's the heart and core of learning deep Torah is finding and discovering your own inner das, your own inner self, really coming in touch with a higher level of consciousness, of awareness. And that's the, the heart and core of Talmud Torah. And Ma'an Torah was that marriage with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's where we, it was a marriage of consciousness with Hashem. It's where we melted into this deep existential oneness, where we became a part of, of reality itself in the deepest way possible. And 
And that's the deeper form of why Neshamas left our bodies for the first two universes. We literally were, you know, sucked into reality, into just external existential connection with Hakadosh Baruch Hu. and and that's really what Das is. It's this form of connection. It's why, you know, it talks about Adam and Chava when it talks about their intimate relationship. It says Das because that's what real marriage is. That's what real connection is. Das is not just knowledge. It's it's knowledge where it synthesizes into a oneness, into a real deep connection. So I just want to briefly develop one point, then we'll go back to our original questions. So this one point I want to develop is that, okay, but Montoro is so extraordinary, it's so great, but we weren't there. So how do we how do we develop it? So we mentioned that we have a Masora. So once again, that, that Masora is great. Um, the, the Ramban talks about this. That's what really the, the purpose of the Sir night is to retap into what we experienced at Mount Torah. And that's really our entire goal of, of learning Torah and our entire goal of life is to retap into the Mount Torah experience and rebuild our connection with Hakash Baruch Hu and to, to strengthen and enhance and build that relationship. And it's it's a relationship of deep inner consciousness, of deep meditation, of being motivated to constantly focus on it. And you live your life based on what you think about and based on where your focus is. So if your focus is on building a relationship with Hashem, that's where everything in your life will go. And that, I mean, one of the famous questions is, you know, Hashem's not revealing himself in the world anymore. <laughs> Hashem's not speaking anymore. But Hashem never stopped talking. Everything in the entire world is a form of communication. Everything, it's like when you look at someone and you see their facial language, their facial expressions, their body language, you that's also a form of communication. Hashem stopped openly speaking to us. We talked about that, where there was a transition in history, Nevuah stopped, miracles stopped, but now we have to learn to see HaKadosh Baruch Hu within the hidden realms of nature, within the events that happen to us, and that is how Hashem communicates to us, based on everything within the revealed world of phenomena and what are we trying to tap into what is what what are we trying to tap into so remember the the shlakada says that we were at our sinai we know what at root we're trying to experience and it's it's at the root of our very un- unconscious subconscious self and all of life is about delving into Talmud Torah, delving into Torah life, delving into the inner wisdom of what it means to be a Jew and constantly expanding our sense of self and improving and enhancing and expanding our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu and rebuilding that Mount Torah experience. But now we get back to our, our foundational question that we began with, which is that if Mount Torah is this is the core and icker of life. It's the gateway into truth. It's the gateway into higher experience. It's where we met a Kaddish Baruch Hu, it's where we married a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and now all of life is really using Ma'an Torah, we receive the Torah, which is a Kaddish Baruch Hu's Ratzon Chachman. All life is using the Torah as the medium of reconnecting to that relationship and that oneness with a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Then why isn't our entire Misorah rooted into Zeichel Ma'an Torah? Why is everything Zeichel Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? Because remember, we said that the Yitzhak time was good enough. It's good enough for the Mitzrayim, it's also good enough for Klai but it was qualitatively not good enough. Mantur was qualitatively, it was experiencing an inner das, inner connection, inner relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So we married HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So why isn't everything in our Mesorah Zecher Torah? So we said that there's, you know, it could be one practical answer. Practical answer is that 
And if you want to really think of it this way, one practical answer is is that it was it was good enough for for the midstream, but it wasn't good enough for us. So we mentioned already that. It's a good answer. It's a, it's a practical answer. For Yitzhak, for, for the Mitzvah, for the rest of the world, Yitzhak Mitzvah was good enough, but for Klai Shul, we have this greater relationship. But why is everything in our Mitzvah going to be Zeichel Yitzhak Mitzvah? That says that Yitzhak Mitzvah is great, so so you can say that maybe it's because our job in life is to be an Olagoyim, is to reveal truth to the world, and therefore we root ourselves back in that universal revelation because we take Mount Torah and we reveal it, you know, in a certain sense what it means to be a Jew to the world. Okay, so that's, that's a good answer. But the Ramban himself even says that all of life is about keeping the experience of Mount Torah with you. That you should never forget, we're going to delve a little bit into this soon, but you should never forget the experience of Mount Torah. So in the six Sechiris, you should never forget Mount Torah. So if, if we should never, never forget Mount Torah, why are we always remembering Yitzhak Mitzrayim? We should always remember Mount Torah. So what I want to do is I want to develop six deep answers and I'm not going to say one answer is the answer. We're going to develop. It's, I'm trying to build a framework of how to really engage in this because if you really tap into everything we've developed so far, the question should be stronger now. Ma'antoba was everything. It was literally everything. It was the pinnacle. It was the highlight. It was the crescendo. It was everything that we're trying to accomplish in life. It was the ultimate experience of Olam Haba, of Hashem himself, Ma'antoba, Kabbal Satoru. Why is everything Zeichel and Tzies Mitzrayim then? Ma'antoba seems to be a far superior far superior root of our Mesorah. So one approach is, like we began to say before, is that Yitzhiz Mitzrayim is still the root of our Ikari Yemunah. The Ramban says that all of our Ikari Yemunah come from Yitzhiz Mitzrayim. Hashem exists, Hashem is all-powerful, reward and punishment. So because these are such important principles, we root our Mesorah back to Yitzhiz Mitzrayim. Okay, so it's a good answer. Once again, the question still remains, though. Okay, that's great. That was the core of Arikarimuna, but still, wasn't Mount Torah far superior? Wasn't that also far more important? Where we receive the Torah, shouldn't that still be the the heart and core of our of our Masorah, where we always read ourselves back to? So it's a good answer. So so far we have, you know, Klai versus the rest of the world. We go back to the universal reveal revelation, or you can say that it's the Karimuna. We go back to where the Karimuna rooted from. But we can still try to develop a, a, a couple other answers that expand our framework and, and build a, a little bit of a deeper outlook on this topic. So another possibility is that Yitzhiya Mitzrayim was the root and birth of Klai Yisrael. So it's true, Mantara was far superior in a certain sense, but we go back to our root, back to our birth. And if you think about it, the Mitzvah of Chodesh, Chodesh Hazeh, that was the, the mitzvah of, of the new month was also the renewal of Klai Yisrael as a, as a klal, as a tzibor. The Karim Pesach, the Maral says, is all the details of the Karim Pesach was about oneness because I was creating the oneness of Klai Yisrael. So it's a, a lamb that's one years old. It has to be one piece, even with one chabura, one tzibor, one community. You have to be designated beforehand. It was eaten at one night and they ate the one lamb and it had to be roasted, not cooked because when you cook it or boil it, it falls apart. But roasting it makes it, you know, it kind of like makes the meat become more one, one piece. And you also have to eat it at one night. You can't have any nosar. And <clears throat> lots of other details of oneness. But the Maharal says all these details of oneness were to create the oneness of Klai because of the birth of Klai that night. So you can say that 
True, Ma'an Torah was a, a far superior proof and revelation of Hashem, but this was the root of Klai Yisrael. And all life is going back to the root. That's what Chachmeh is going back to the root. Where was the root? Where was our birth? That was Yitzhiya Mitzrayim. That was Na'ev Yitzhiya Mitzrayim. And our goal is Ma'an Torah. We're not questioning that. That was Anochi Hashem. I am Hashem. That was Hashem revealing himself in a more, much more intimate way. But what we do is we go back to the root. Because the root, in a certain sense, is even more fundamental. Because it's where everything stemmed from. It was the starting point. So therefore, we go back through it. So true, Ma'an Torah was a far superior experience qualitatively, but in terms of how we identify the root of Klai Yisrael, that goes back to Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And you can even think of it in a deeper way. We only became Klai Yisrael because of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. This is a, a great question that people ask. Why are we so happy in Seder night to say Pesach, we celebrate that we, we left Mitzrayim? HaKosh Baruch Hu sent us into Mitzrayim. Tells Avram, I'm sending uh, your, 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 I'm just going to send your children into slavery. Then he takes us out. Why are we so happy? It's like someone puts you in jail and then after a week takes you out. Do you thank him? You say, no, why did you put me in jail in the first place? I didn't do anything. So why do we have to go into Mitzrayim? So this is a very deep topic. and give a whole share on this, but without getting to all different nekudos, HaKadosh Baruch Hu was only able to create us as Klaisel because we went into Mitzrayim. Many different reasons, many different details, but just one really important is, is the idea of Shfir HaKalim, the idea of we went into Mitzrayim to basically shatter ourselves in terms of identity so that we can literally, from the bottom up, from the core, from the starting point, point one, create ourselves as a Tzibor, as a Klal. So yes, we were you know, 70 great individuals, but we became an actual, unified, spiritual, metaphysical tzibor, a klal, by le- by going into the process of, of Shibud Mitzrayim and Yitzis Mitzrayim. So part of the whole reason why we became Klaish was only because of Yitzis Mitzrayim, and only because of the, the entire process. So Yitzis Mitzrayim was the root of us becoming Klaish. And I want to take this actually a step further, because not only do we become Klaish, but there's something really and we've given Shirim on this before, we're going to briefly just go over for like one or two minutes, we didn't just become a nation. We became a nation that is spiritually, metaphysically, and halakhically connected to the spiritual world. In the sense that we became a cosmic nation. Not just a group of people together who are committed to a unified goal, we became a spiritual people. Meaning, spiritually became interconnected as a unified people who was able to affect reality, affect the spiritual world. That was, like if you think about it, number one, Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim allowed us to transcend the, the limitations of Mitzrayim. So without getting into all the different spiritual concepts of where Mitzrayim corrupts reality, Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim was us transcending that as a nation. So all of the different aspects of Mitzrayim, so for example, they don't daven, tashem, they have the Nile, we are connected to Kash Baruch Hu through Ratzon, we daven Tashem, Mitzrayim is Mitzar Yam, all these different ideas of, of Ervas Haaretz, all the different problems of where Mitzrayim goes wrong, uh, of Mispar, of, of being limited within the finite realm of reality. Like, once again, for those of you who are familiar with these ideas, you know exactly what I'm talking about. For those of you who don't, there's a whole realm of Torah thought on what Mitzrayim represents. So, Klai Yisrael, without getting into all the details, transcended all the problems of what Mitzrayim represents. We also transcended time, that was the concept of matzah, where we were able to exist on a plane that transcends the limitations of time and space. So matzah takes up the minimum amount of time and space, and we're able to build a transcendent root. 
which transcended time and space. Obviously, then we can come back down and use time and space, but our transcendent root was built off of that night of leaving Mitzrayim, Bechipa zone. And to take a step further, the Chazal say that we transform matzah into mitzvah, adding a vav, which means that matzah is, is something, without getting into all the details, it's really a whole shear, but the, our ability to affect the spiritual, to be connected to Hashem, was rooted in Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim, where we added a vav to matzah, which became mitzvah. Which the whole concept was that mean? It means that a vav is a connecting letter. You put a vav, it's a hook. A vav means a hook, but a vav, you put a beginning of a word to say and. You connect two ideas. Vav in matzah connect matzah to mitzvah, which is the idea of we were able to now affect the spiritual world through mitzvahs. We were, I'm not going to get into the whole connect, the whole idea, but. It, trans, it transformed us into a nation not only listens to Hashem's will, but is able to connect to Hashem through mitzvahs. Because what is mitzvah comes? The Maharal says that mitzvah comes through tzavta, which means connection. So we don't listen to Hashem only because he commanded, like an army officer, you know, giving drills and giving orders. Obviously, we listen to Hashem because he is the source of the ultimate truth. He is the ultimate truth, and he tells us what to do. But not only from a level of command to obeying a command, but also in the form of tzavta, which is connection, building a relationship, building a connection with the Kaj Baruch Hu, which obviously the ultimate experience of that was Ma'an Torah, but the root of that comes from Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim. So this is another answer, which is that we go back to the root. The root of Klai Yisrael is Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim, and that's basically why we have Zeichel Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim. Even though Ma'antor was a superior experience of our connection with Hashem, we go back to the root. But there's a deeper way of thinking of this as well, which is that Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim includes Ma'antor within it. So, so far we basically said Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim give, has something Ma'antor doesn't have. Right? We said that either it's, for, it's universal, it's for everyone, or we said that it's the Ikariya or we also gave another answer, which is that it was the root of Klai Yisrael, not just like historically the root, but the fundamental root where we became a, a transcendent spiritual nation. But there's another way, and this is a little bit of a deeper, more fundamental answer. We're not saying that it's different than Ma'an Torah or better than Ma'an Torah. We're saying it includes Ma'an Torah within it. Why? And this is also a deep machshava principle, which is that Ma'an Torah didn't just come after Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim. Right? The phrase Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim includes the story of Ma'an Torah. Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim is the journey from Mitzrayim to Ma'an Torah. But it's not that Ma'an Torah came after, it's that it's, it's a continuation of Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim. And if you think of it like that, first of all, within spirituality, I said, I said that I mentioned a little earlier, Chachma, you always go back to the root. Why? Because the root includes the expression. So Ma'an Torah didn't just chronologically come after Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim, it is rooted within Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim, meaning that Ma'an Torah is an expression of Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim, but that means that it's contained within Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim. It's like you have a tree, a tree comes from a seed. So if you have, let's say, a giant trunk and a seed, the giant trunk is really contained within that seed. And, and everything in that tree is contained within that scene. Our entire story as a Jewish people is an expression and continuation of Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim. It's why Kulamar Belasapar Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim has Harizam Meshubach. We see that Seder night. That deeper understanding of the idea is that it's not just good to increase the amount that you talk about Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim. It's connect yourself to being a part of the story. Live a life of Torah Mitzvahs. Become extraordinary because you are a continuation of Sipur Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim. Because Sipur Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim is the Jewish story that started 
by leaving Mitzrayim. So this answer not says that Yitzhak Mitzrayim is better than Mount Torah, it says that Yitzhak Mitzrayim actually includes Mount Torah because it's the root which then Mount Torah is an expression of that. And I want to take it one step further because that sounds great. That sounds, it sounds extraordinary. But what does it mean that Mount Torah is included within Yitzhak Mitzrayim? So I, I have a tremendous chiddush. Uh, and I say tremendous because like it inspired me. I was I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago. I was thinking, this sounds like a great idea that Yitzhak Mitzrayim is really includes Mount Torah, but then shouldn't we have the superior experience of Mount Torah by Yitzhak Mitzrayim? If it's really includes Mount Torah, why isn't the superior experience of really experiencing Hashem Himself? Why isn't that by Pesach? Why isn't that by Yitzhak Mitzrayim? The first night of Pesach should really include that. I was thinking about it, and it does. Why, why does it? So let's think about this. There's a principle. There's a principle that, and we've developed this many, many times in the past, that everything in life is three stages. The first stage is the ideal. Next, you lose it, and then you have to rebuild it. And then the third stage is re-getting to that first ideal, but this time you've earned it. So the Maharal talks about this, the talks about this, Vilna Gon talks about this. That's why you learned Kolotoro Klu in the womb. That was a gift. You lose it, you come to this world, and you have to rebuild it yourself. Same thing applies to Sphere Omer. The first night of Sphere Omer, we don't count. The actual date is the first night of Pesach. We don't count that date. We only start counting on the second date. And then we, we start counting. That's what we're doing. We're building to Ma'an Torah. But what do we do on Ma'an Torah? Do we count the 50th day? No. Why? Because the first and 50th day are really the same. They're transcendent. The 49 days are days of building. We've given a whole sheer on the, the real nature of Sphiris Omer, what it means. We're not counting, we're building, we're creating ourselves. We go from <clears throat> animals to human, from barley to wheat, from limited to transcendent. We really end up building ourselves through this process of Sphiris Omer. But the first night was that gift. The 50th, the Ma'an Torah, Harsinai. The experience of Harsinai, Shavuos, is really just a revelation of everything that was experienced as a gift on the first night of Pesach. What was the first night of Pesach? Hashem Himself performed Makas Bechoros. Hashem Himself revealed Himself to us. Hashem Himself took us out of Mitzrayim. Didn't do it through Malachim, didn't do it through intermediaries. It was an experience of Hashem Himself. But it was a gift. It was unearned. So we lost that. Then we go through 49 days in the Midbar of having to build it, earning it, creating it, day by day. Every seven days creates a week, and then those seven days create seven weeks. Shavuos means weeks, but also comes through a Shava, seven, seven weeks of seven. And after that, the 50th is that the transcendent that results from all those pieces coming together. But it's really a re-experience of that first night, which was a gift, but this time we earned it. And that's why in a certain sense, the very root of Ma'an Torah actually exists on that first night of Pesach. And the very core of what we're trying to build stems from that initial first night of Pesach. So it's not only that Yitzhak Mitzrayim contains it as in it's the roots of the beginning of the process, but actually fundamentally there's an aspect of the Mount Torah experience that was also experienced that night. And obviously Mount Torah is different because it was after we built and earned it, it was where we mashed in a deeper way, where it was the Kabbalah Satora. But there's still an aspect of Ma'an Torah that exists within Yitzhak Mitzrayim, and therefore Zeichel Yitzhak Mitzrayim is not saying instead of Ma'an Torah, but in a certain sense, in a certain respect, it still, it still contains an aspect of Ma'an Torah as well. It's a very deep idea, 
And basically, the, the premise is that we go based on the root. We trace ourselves back to the root, not to the expression. <clears throat> but I want to share one last approach, one last answer. And we'll end with this. The last answer is that Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim taught us how to approach and how to perceive this world of nature. Because Man Torah was an otherworldly experience, a transcendent experience. It was an Olam Haba experience. But we don't experience the world like that. As a matter of fact, we don't even have Navu anymore. We don't have miracles anymore. We, all we experience is a world of the natural. But Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, as the Ramban teaches us, it shows us that nature itself is actually a miracle. That there is no such thing as nature. That nature is something that happens all the time, but everything is the Ratzon Hashem. It's like if you imagine someone in your mind and you give them a name and a background story and clothing and a face, and you then think about that person, they exist, but if you stop thinking about them, they cease to exist. Well, Nefesh Haim says that the only reason we exist is that Hashem constantly wills us into, exi- into existence. Every single second of existence, we only are here because Hashem is creating us, thinking about us, willing us into existence. Every single moment is a miracle. The only difference between miracle and nature is that miracles happen less often. But nature itself is the same exact concept of a miracle. It's Hashem willing something into existence. Hashem doesn't watch us as nature goes on as it should. Nature is a word we use to refer to Hashem's willing everything into existence. And we need to learn to see the natural as the miraculous. What the Ramban says that when he did these miracles by Yitzhak Mitzrayim, he was Megale, that the Nisim Nistarim are also Nisim. By the Nisim uh, Niglaim, by the open miracles, Hakash Baruch Hu, the actual Ashana is Min Nisim Hagadolam Hamufsamim, Hamufursamim, on the Mode Menisim Hanistarim, Shaheim Yesod Hatorakula. That's the Ramban Shemos, Perik Yigimel, Pasak Tezain. Whether Ramban and Parshas Bo says that Akash Baruch is revealing by Yitzhak Mitzrayim that everything is a miracle. So why don't we root ourselves by, by back to Ma'an Torah? It's also a fundamental miracle. Because Ma'an Torah wasn't an experience that we have nowadays. We're in the natural world. And Yitzhak Mitzrayim taught us how to view the natural world. Ma'an Torah taught us the goal taught us the transcendent. They revealed to us the ultimate catch of the ultimate relationship with Hashem. But we live in a natural world and therefore we go back to Mitzrayim because that's where Hashem taught us how to look at the natural world and say that everything in this world is a gilu of Hashem, is a revelation of Hashem. And therefore all the mitzvos that we have, that our Zechelit Mitzrayim are saying, use this physical world and uplift it. Learn how to view the physical as, as metaphysical. View the physical as spiritual, as transformational, as something transcendent, something extraordinary. And uh, uh, we shared this at the, at the Seder Night Chair a couple weeks ago. But there is a beautiful approach that this is the difference between Sipro Yitzhak Mitzrayim and Zechel Yitzhak Mitzrayim. What's the difference? So there's many famous answers, and they're given over Menchaz Chinuch, Chaim Bres gives a bunch of answers. But one of the answers we developed was that Sipur Yitzis Mitzrayim is the Yitzis Mitzrayim actual experience. It's the, the miraculous. Sipur Yitzis Mitzrayim, we talk about the miracles. The Rambam says in Mishnah Torah that the, the mitzvah of Sipur Yitzis Mitzrayim, the Iker mitzvah for those who are old enough, not the children, then you just children you tell the story, but for the adults, those who have intellectual capacity and capabilities, 
the Ikra Mitzvah is to tell her for the miracles of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Because Sipo Yitzhak Mitzrayim is tapping into the miracles of Hashem revealed by Yitzhak Mitzrayim. But what does Zeichel Yitzhak Mitzrayim do? It says that Sipo Yitzhak Mitzrayim teaches how to view the rest of the world. That the miracles of Yitzhak Mitzrayim teaches how to view the natural as miraculous too, like the Ramban says. And therefore Zeichel Yitzhak Mitzrayim all year round taps into the fact that we can use the Sipo Yitzhak Mitzrayim of Pesach to kind of frame a light and frame a lens on the rest of the, our year to view the natural through those same lens. So Zeichel Yitzis Mitzrayim is basically saying we tap into Seipur Yitzis Mitzrayim all year round to view the natural as the miraculous. So Pesach reveals the miraculous and all year round we remember the miraculous to transfer how we view the natural. And, and this, this is how you live a Jewish life. You view the natural as the miraculous. You live a transcendent life within the physical. You live a spiritual life within the mundane. And that really is, is our goal in, in life, is to bring the Ma'an Torah experience into this world. Ma'an Torah taught us what we're striving for, is the goal. And Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is really, it's, it's, it taught us how to perceive this world. And when we can synthesize those two, we, we, we live such a transcendent life. And, and that's why we root ourselves because Ma'an Torah is the goal, but then we come back down and we learn how to view the physical world through that lens. So Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim revealed the miraculous, revealed Hashem, revealed, so to speak, the, the nature of, of of how to view the natural, how to view existence. Ma'an Torah revealed the ultimate relationship with Hashem. It was the ultimate destination. And Zeichel Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is then bringing our Ma'an Torah experience, along with our Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim experience, and bringing it down to how to view the physical world, how to come back down and use this world, which is something that we do all the time. And I'll give you a great proof. I'll give you a great proof. If you look at the Pesukim, is it something extraordinary. The Pesukim say <clears throat> that right after Ma'an Torah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu commands Klai Yisrael to, to, to come back down and to be with their wives. So, so what, what, what's going on there? So the Gemara actually says, says something very interesting. It says that the, the Gemara Sahedrindaf Nun Tesamabe says that there was an Isser to be with their wives right before, and it says, the Pasuk says, Shuvu Aleichem Le'elo Aleichem. So it says, Go back to your tents, which Chazal understand to me that you should go back to be with your wives. So what, what does that mean? So similar thing is that I had to remove the Isser. There's an Isser to be with your wives three days before, and now there's a Heter. But the deeper approach is that Mantra was a transcendent experience. But then what was our goal after Mantra? Our goal is not to be malachim. Our goal is to be malachim within the physical world, to uplift the physical world. So right after the Montour experience, Hashem says, go back and take the intimacy and the connection and the spiritual connection and engage it in the physical world. Uplift this experience in the physical world and be spiritual beings uplifting their physical experience and revealing the oneness of Akash Baruch Hu within the physical world. And that really becomes our ultimate goal because... Our goal is not to transcend this physical world, it's to bring transcendence into the physical world, to reveal the transcendence of the physical world. And that's really what, what, what Pesach was in a certain sense. On Pesach, we, 
we, we live a life of, of transcendence, of, of, uh, of really, you know, transcending time, transcending space. But we don't only have matzah all year round. On Shavuos, we have lacham, we have bread. Why? Because once you can transcend the physical, you can use the physical. That, that was Avraham's midah that he taught the world. That you don't have to transcend the physical world to be spiritual. You don't have to be celibate. You don't have to meditate on a mountaintop all day. You don't have to be a pietist. You can actually use the physical to transcend, which is why his mitzvah was brismila, taking the most animalistic organ in the body and using it to transcend. And that's important, though, because once you can transcend... Once you don't need the physical, then you can come down and use the physical. That's why we first have Yom Kippur, where we're malachim, we wear all white, we say, something that only malachim say. We, you know, the coin Gadol goes into the Kosh because he's, you know, completely transcendent on that thing. No man can go into the Kosh Ocean. But once we have Yom Kippur, once we transcend, once we connect to our angelic selves, we don't wear shoes, we don't engage in the physical in that day, we don't engage in, we don't eat, we don't engage in anything physical or corporeal or, or limited. But then we have sukkah. We're eating uh, you know, festive meals of, of basar and yayin. And what's going on? Because once you can transcend, once you're, you tap into that perfect root, then you can come down and use the physical world. That's the concept of wine. Wine is something so physical, something that can be corrupted. But every zman of Kedusha, we, we uplift it with wine. Because wine is something which can be, it is the most physical substance, since the Vilagon says the only physical, uh, uh, not the only, but one of the physical substances that gets better over time. All physical things, you know, decay and erode over time. Wine gets better because it's the most spiritual physical entity because it can be used so inappropriately because it can be used so appropriately. The morale says that everything is potential in this world. And our job is not to escape the physical. It's one of the reasons why Nazir has to bring Karman Chattis is because there was a problem with him not engaging in the physical and uplifting it. It's not the ideal spiritual path. The ideal is to engage in the physical and uplift it. And that becomes so important because the whole world is a gili of Hashem. The whole world, our job is to recognize how everything in the physical world is an expression of the spiritual and to source everything back to its ultimate root. And you don't do that by escaping the physical. You do that by engaging in the physical and connecting the physical back to the spiritual. So now we can understand the Ramban who says, that really our whole goal of life is to keep the experience and the consciousness of Ma'an Torah with us as we engage in the physical world. And it's something so powerful. It's You live a physical life while still connected to the transcendent. And you reveal the oneness of HaKadosh Baruch it's, it's actually fascinating. The Ramban says, the Lashon of the Ramban is, he says, very interesting, he says, you shouldn't forget. So the question is, what does it mean that you shouldn't forget? You should, you should have said you should remember. You should remember. It's like we have the the the, the six zechiros, right? Yitzis Mitzrayim, Ma'an Torah, Amalek, Egel, Miriam, and Shabbos. So the question is, all other all other of these five zechiros, it says you should remember, right? Zecher Amalek, Zechira by Shabbos. But when it comes to Ma'an Torah, says Pentishkach. Don't forget. You want to look it up yourself, you can look it up in, in Dvarim uh, Perik Dalid Pasuk Tas. Pentishkach. So the question is, what does it mean, don't forget? But the answer is like this. Rosh Shapiro says, when it comes to remembering, you have to recreate the experience within your consciousness. You recall it. You trace it back. You bring it back into the forefront of your mind and your consciousness. Pentishkach is saying, don't forget. Why? Because it's never supposed to leave. 
It's supposed to always remain within the forefront of your consciousness. You should always be there. And if you think about it, that is our goal in life. It's to always be at that mantra experience, to always keep that at the forefront of our mind. It's why the Mishkan and the and the the Beis Hamikdash became the, the replacement of the Mount Torah experience. It was continuing that experience. And once the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed, the 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 Beis Medrash and the Shul became the continuation of that experience. Where we tap into that Avira, that connection, that the, the, the delving into. Because what is how do we keep the consciousness, the connection with the Kosh Baruch nowadays? How do we recreate the Mount Torah experience? It is through the Torah. It's through Torah, Tefillah, and keeping mitzvahs. It is connecting constantly our mind, our actions, and our will, and our emotional reality, our entire existence, always tapping into the nature of truth, always devoting our lives to the truth, living a higher existence, and, and, and tapping into that inner consciousness of connecting to Kosh Baruch Hu, which is done through, what's the Torah? Torah is a, is, is a gila, it's a revelation of a Kosh Baruch Hu's will and a Kosh Baruch Hu's mashallah. And through learning Torah, delving into the deepest essence of Torah and living a life of truth and, and really working on yourself and becoming the best version of yourself, you are continuing that Ma'an Torah experience. And the ultimate ideal is Bilvavi Mishkan Evna, is to have that internal Mishkan within yourself, to be a vessel for Akash Bakhu, both in terms of your internal experience and also revealing that out to the world, to speak Torah to think Torah, to become Torah, to become one with Akash Baruch Hu, to become so, so connected to truth, to live a life where your entire world is, is, is a deeper, more intrinsic, it's really what we talked about, the building that inner das, where you're so deeply connected to yourself, to your higher self, to your best self, living your ultimate life and revealing Akash Baruch Hu to everyone else. Including, including yourself, including ourselves. So obviously, this was this was a lot. This was a lot, and I'll be very honest with you. I was debating to break this up into parts, but when it comes to part, you know, part one, part two, part three, a lot of people they you know listen to a part here, part there, but this is this is one structure. It's understanding the difference between Yitzchak Mitzrayim and Ma'an Torah. Why our, our Masorah is rooted in Yitzchak Mitzrayim. What Ma'an Torah was that Yitzchak Mitzrayim. It wasn't why we always go back to Yitzchak Mitzrayim if Ma'an Torah is far superior to Yitzchak Mitzrayim. And this is a dialogue. There is so much in this discussion. And you know, I, I've, I've thought about this for years and years and years. And if you want to listen to this again and again and again, there, there's so much in here. And don't think that this is a finished picture. This is a conversation. This is the beginning point. This time for you to think about these ideas. There is one thing that I want you to leave with, which is that our goal in life is to be rebuilding the Ma'antar experience within our own lives. As the Shlachatar says, we were all there, but our goal in life is to build it within ourselves, to constantly be delving deeper into everything, building a more nuanced approach to everything, to really be thinking. Obviously, you want to be engaging the physical world. You want to be doing, right? You also want to be engaging your emotional Self. You want to really make sure that you're feeling and experiencing on the lower level of experiencing how you live your life. Tefillah should be real. Mitzvah should be done, you know, bizrizus and with excitement and with energy. And you want to engage your intellect. You want to be learning Torah. You want to be engaging in sugyas and shas and learning Torah begin and learning Gemara begin and really delving into sugyas and really doing them well. And you want to really be thinking about your purpose in life and why you're here, and you want to be developing your intellectual faculties, your rational faculties. 
become intelligent. You use the meat of Bina. But the ultimate, ultimate goal is to engage in Das, to engage in, in inner Chachma, inner wisdom, the deepest level of wisdom, inner awareness, inner consciousness, become more self-aware of yourself, of your kokos, of where you want to build yourself and start to build an inner awareness of life, of inner consciousness. That's how you build your inner relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, how you build your relationships with your spouse and with your friends and with Israel. But it starts by building within yourself. And that's really the, the, the main point of this year, is that the highest level of knowledge is inner das. It's inner awareness, higher, higher level intrinsic core experiential knowledge. Higher experiential knowledge. And we're not going to get into it now, but that's really the icker core of what Navu is. My bracha is that we should all strive to really build this inner das, this inner knowledge. And we should constantly, constantly strive for higher levels of das. Because... As the Ramban says, you will never, ever, ever attain the ultimate truth. But our goal in life is to get infinitely closer. And there is no end. It goes on forever. Olam Haba is continued, continued levels of ascension. And there are just stages of existence, stages of life. Right now, our stage of life is to endlessly pursue higher levels of knowledge, higher levels of becoming the best versions of ourselves, of doing the most good in the world, and becoming you know, forever, ever, ever closer. You know, continuously getting closer to Gosh Baruch Hu. And my bracha is that we should really build and continue to build this mantra experience within ourselves as we go through Sphere's Omer, as we build towards Shavuos, let's remember the goal of constantly experiencing Torah.